The World Trade Center was blown up by very high advanced explosives. Is it possible for we, the American people, to trust you with our economy if we can't trust you with restoring the rule of law? Uh, yes. Thank you. Everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, what do you mean, yes? You can trust me. Are, are you gonna Are you gonna do an investigation? Sir, are you part of the the treasonous cover up of 9/11? Are you gonna help clear this up? Vice President Biden, this is about treason under Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution. We must speak the truth about terror. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. Take you what happens? I tell you what happens. Blam! I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw... No collusion! Shit's getting way too complicated for me. Welcome to The Antidote. This is Greg McCarran. And this is Jeremy Roth Show. We are recording. It is uh, Sunday, September 12th. We have uh, one day past the... 20th anniversary of uh, what I still say is the most consequential event of our generation, uh, both for you know for the United States, I believe, and the uh, and the world in general in terms of all the changes that have uh, taken place since. Of course, you know we could argue about COVID. I'm not here to argue one way or the other about that, but certainly um, as far as the generation I grew up in, very obviously super consequential event that's still in just about. Every way becomes more important as time goes on. Of course, that's the events of uh, September 11th. Uh, September 11th, we just passed the uh, the 20th anniversary. And anybody who's been following us for uh, any period of time knows that this is a knows that this is a key topic that we constantly continue to go back to, both in terms of the events of September 11th, but as well as also the the aftermath of it, as well as the the lead up to it, which you could say was of both the short term lead up and a long term lead up uh, to the events of uh, of September 11th and all that have followed, and so um, you know, largely for me, um, I haven't really been following too much like the the mainstream uh, reaction to the 20th anniversary of September 11th. I know there were events and quote unquote celebrations at the various sites in New York and uh, Washington and Shanksville, and I know that. Uh, the New York Yankees, of course, which was a big deal after September 11th, being the team of New York, played the Mets last night, and there was a big 9-11 we will never forget display during that baseball game on primetime television last night. But other than that, you know, I really haven't been too much in the uh, in the loop as far as like the mainstream reaction to the events of September 11th. Uh, that said, um, we have a few different areas we want to go down in terms of some uh, some things we have picked up on over the weekend, over the last uh, last few days, as well as a more generalized um, discussion about just exactly still like to this day the importance of understanding as much as we possibly can what actually happened and where blame and responsibility lies as well as some other facets in terms of uh, varying responses to it and uh, aspects of anti-war movement as it relates to September 11th and the events around it. So uh, Jeremy, um, Enough of for my intro here. Um, where are you standing today, and what are you? Uh, anything in particular you're feeling right now, and then we can just start getting into the conversation we discussed earlier offset for the show. Well, it was interesting yesterday. I maybe paid the least attention to the general, the general mainstream honoring of the day the way that it's done. I usually like to pay attention to that and tune in to the reading of the names uh, of the dead 
and see how the the media is the mainstream media is spinning the whole thing and this year i did not i was not called to that and there i i do get the sense of like uh, of breaking free from what i've called this cult of the calendar or a calendrical cult and of course i'm not saying that to dismiss the importance of anniversaries of holidays which we always mark with a a date on the calendar but there's something very unique about the way that September 11th has been perpetrated into the general public consciousness which we've spoken about uh, many years ago, actually, but just by pointing out that it seems to be unique in terms of an historical event that is identified by the nomenclature of the, the, the numerology of the date, specifically. And we pointed out how, how strange that, that feels, like the Kennedy assassination is not called 1122. Although there's obviously there, there appears to be numer numerological patterns to some of these deep events, which is a whole nother matter that, and the combination of preconditioning and the pre architecture of public consciousness in terms of uh, these kinds of events in mass media and movie and TVs and stuff like that. But just on the very basic level of the obvious fact that we, I'm not aware of any other event that is referred to, maybe the closest that we talked about is 4th of July. But it's still saying 4th of July. It's not 7-4, right? So there's something very, you know, there's something there about the way that the, the terminology, 9-11, 9-11, obviously there's something to that. There's all kinds of things to that, but the most obvious is that emergency, emergency, emergency. And then the other thing about it is that we pointed out that describing it via this anniversary of 9-11, it, it almost dehistoricizes it. It takes it outside of the normal course of historical analysis where you can talk about an event as, as in a framework of a calendar where other events took place and the, and it's talked about, it's the sacred day and all of those kinds of things. Like even, even in like in religious traditions, like when you're talking about, uh, you know, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, for example, there, of course, are days that are religious days, and they're sort of seen as sacred, but it's not the date, per se, that's sacred. It's the, the meaning of it. And so there's something that needs to be reckoned with, I think, in order for us to begin to think properly through the totality of the parameters uh, about what happened on September 11th and what it actually means and what we should actually, quote unquote, never forget, never forget. What about remember? 
What do we need to remember? What do we need to know? So uh, there's this whole array of these very subtle, but then ultimately obvious trinkets of mind control that I see as associated with the perpetual celebration of the trauma of 9-11 as a sacred numerological day that I believe is an entry point to beginning to think through all of these different kinds of intellectual, spiritual, epistemological stumbling blocks, many of them very likely uh, even put there by aspects of the network of the perpetrators or those who are in, in league with the perpetrators of September 11th in order for us to not be able to think through these things. And I'll finish up with this, but for example, one thing is just this, the, the attachment to the date and the attachment to the anniversary. This ran through the 9-11 truth movement. I talked about how there was the black t-shirts about at ground zero on the, the anniversary of the day of. So you're creating this thing about how the truth is oriented about a specific place, a specific time uh, once a year, and a specific uh, approach to it, rather than an ongoing public conversation grounded in the facts and forensics, but oriented towards analysis of the who did it and why in a way that both directs itself towards political, core political understanding, i.e., how can we improve our situation? How can we rectify our public situation? How can we solve the conundrums of our public political situation? But also in terms of where, how you could think through that kind of thing. It's a, if the assertions that we continue to make, that first of all, of course we were lied to about September 11th. We're lied to about everything from big to small. From the, the, almost every single major event in our American history, at some level there's lies piled on top of it at the very least, if not originating in the incident itself. But even the small, just for Anthony Fauci, in the beginning of the, three, the newest 311 operation, in terms of the quote-unquote response to the obviously lab-engineered bio-warfare-inclined bio pandemic. Of course, we still don't, we don't have the forensics of that well-nailed down at this point. Not as well nailed down as we actually do in terms of September 11th. But Anthony Fauci, in the beginnings of the newest 311, lied to the American people about the basics of public health. If you're dealing with uh, a virally based respiratory illness that is aerosolized, and then telling the American people that they shouldn't wear masks. 
And that was a lie. We know that now. We we know that 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 was said because of reasons of a lack of proper public institutional planning uh, in terms of personal protective equipment, things that would even touch more deeply into the outsourcing of just the basics of our economic sovereignty and uh, capacity in the United States of America over decades and decades of time. And for example, the role of people like Henry Kissinger in that evisceration and that outsourcing. So I just mean to say that, of course, we were lied to about 9-11. That would have been, that would have been an, an important thing to understand and say 19 years ago or 20 years ago, 20 years ago, the, the most, the most sort of perceptive and serious people were saying day one around 9-11, it's a lie what we're being told about who did it and why. All right. And we're not in 2001 anymore or 2002 to 2003. There is a lot more that those paying attention and doing some basic amount of work in terms of both the forensics and physical facts of September 11th and what that then means about what you can assert in terms of common physical sense about what did and didn't happen, for example, in what's now been called Ground Zero Lower Manhattan, or what it means about what we can properly hypothesize and assert analytically in terms of the more contextual, what in a legal context you might call circumstantial evidence, but which is circumstantial evidence is almost always the key to proving. Remember, proof is always a sliding scale concept, and even in a legal fashion, where you go from criminal proof is somewhere beyond all reasonable doubt, right? So that's pretty high up there. That's 90 to 90%, and, you know, up above 90% uh, idea of proof that it's true rather than false, the hypothesis, the legal hypothesis. But then on down to things like clear and convincing, which is maybe more than 50%. It's a, or I think clear and convincing is maybe more like maybe two thirds or the predominance of the evidence, which is where you're just talking about 50, 50, over 50% where you're talking about in a civil, a civil suit, which side is more likely true, something like that. So, but meanwhile, in order to make any of these cases in terms of the illegal context, of course, there, as we talk, there are civil suits being waged in a different dynamics. There's the American context. There's actually interesting uh, uh, British inquiries that are beginning by the family members of uh, a British citizen who was uh, murdered on September 11th. And those are crucial because, of course, the and we'll touch on this in a, a future uh, recording that we uh, talked about doing in our previous show about the intelligence legend parameters of September 11th in relationship to Afghanistan, the 20-year Afghanistan war, and then the, uh, the uh, 
the leaving of Afghanistan more recently. But we talked about how there's these an uptick in the media representations of all aspects surrounding September 11th, including uh, Spike Lee's recent uh, productions for HBO, where he apparently re-edited it to uh, take out some aspect of uh, questions about the World Trade Center and inclusion of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and all that. But we also pointed out that there is a slate story about another film that has been made about the paymaster of September 11th, Kenneth Feinberg. And that was about the danger of allowing those with standing, i.e. the family members of those who were murdered on September 11th, to be able to use the American civil legal process to gain access to the court system and all of the evidentiary possibilities that uh, lay with that. And so it appears that the main reason, at least what you would, you, uh, you, if you would suspect that someone uh, who did September 11th who was hiding their involvement in it, and it was different than what we were being told by the totality of the corporate media and the government sources, then you would imagine that a key piece of that would be to not allow or to try to dissuade, by any means possible, dissuade as many people withstanding from bringing their cases into the legal system where they would, where there would then be a problem of discovery, which includes documents, but also includes uh, putting witnesses under oath, potentially on video tape, but definitely in transcript in terms of depositions and where all of that goes. And it's very interesting. I'll just say this, that early on when I began to really understand September 11th and begin to uh, associate myself and begin discussions with people who, uh, who were part of what we might call the 9-11 truth movement, I very soon realized that this had to go beyond just information, <laughs> that reading books, handing out flyers, making films, printing up and passing out DVDs, doing bannering, doing civil outreach on the street, and, ev and even doing, uh, you know, journalism and press-style confrontations with interested parties, that none of that was enough. Was that important work? Yes, it was. There's something that's real basic about civil information hearing in terms of, especially if we really, as a, let's say, as in an, an American context, but way beyond just the American context, whether we have any semblance of commitment to, respect for, desire to uh, reinstate in a, a stronger form, let's say, 
the idea of a civil society or we the people, as it might be termed in terms of our preamble and our uh, pre-documents to our governing document of the Constitution. If you're talking about the Declaration of Independence, then you're talking about, well, who has the legitimacy to create the government and what is implied and but not yet realized, let's say, in terms of we the people, we all the people, is that we the people before and underneath and above the government, we are the ones who are and the only legitimate source of power in relationship to the government. And of course, then, then that flows down from the hierarchy of sovereignty to what then might be called the Bill of Rights in relationship to the set of limitations on the government that does not prescribe our rights, which could be seen as natural rights, not even civil rights, but natural rights of human beings to be able to be free to think, to speak, to assemble, to, uh, to worship, to have freedom of conscience in a deep and spiritual, religious, and even psychological way. And that the government didn't give us those rights. The government was just pres prescribed from not being able to violate those natural rights. So obviously the sovereignty of our minds and the sovereignty of our knowing, our epistemological sovereignty, we might call, is related, I think, to our political dignity and our, and our political viability, I might say. But it's not enough. Civil informationeering and getting information to each other is necessary but not sufficient in terms of any proper political process where we are not going to allow the endless high crimes and, dare I say, treason related to September 11th. And it's not just national, obviously. It's international. It's war crimes that were justified on the back of the cover-up of September 11th, ultimately, which are both internationally war crimes, but they're also domestically treason under Article 3, Section 3 of our Constitution, which I pointed out last time we discussed this, is the only crime that is uh, defined in the U.S. Constitution, as far as I'm aware of, is treason. And it's limited in scope so that it's not just talking bad about the king, whether it's King George in Britain or King George W. Bush from the Bush family legacy or something like that. But no, it's very specifically defined as waging war against the United States of America or giving aid and comfort to those who do. Okay. Very, very specific. Now you could then make arguments about giving aid and comfort is usually the the terminology that is utilized to basically make any political decision that you disagree with. Uh, an example of treason or something like that. But if we're thinking about September 11th and we're talking about the blatant wars that have been waged with the justification, both directly and implicated 
of September 11th as the origin of the justification for these global war crimes, then you have to get to the root of both aspects of the criminality, not just the international criminality, which is the question of the war crimes, the uh, imperial wars, the occupations based on that, but also the domestic law of treason and murder that remains unsolved, really, to this day in a legal fashion. So in order to get there, we had to go beyond just saying we were lied to. That's, that's not the way that you either make a political case or you make a, a legal case against somebody, unless you're in a civil suit in relationship to uh, fraud or something like that. If you can prove you were lied to in relationship to contract law, I guess, then maybe you then could bring suit just based on that. But if you're talking about serious, you know, bodily harm, criminal law, definitely murder, evidence, lying is evidence of bad faith, but it's not proof of the crime. And you can't, you can't uh, bring a, uh, a grand jury, you can't, you can't bring it to a grand jury based on just, we were lied to by the government or something like that. No. So early on, let me finish the story and then I'll pass it back over to you, Greg. Early on. No problem. Okay. Early on in, in, in my involvement in the 9-11 truth discourse and talking with others, I kept making the point. I was like, okay, well, now, all right, we understand that we were lied to. We even understand we were murdered on 9-11. Uh, and remember, that's the whole big division between those people who celebrated Richard Clark who infamously told, I think, the 9-11 uh, Commission early hearings that your, your he was telling the family members, your government lied to you. But it was much worse, much, much worse than that. Someone murdered us. We were not just lied to, we were murdered. And it wasn't even just us as Americans for all those fake-ass rhetoricians of the anti, so-called anti-imperialist left who try to pretend like the core of the moral uh, reason for being of the 9-11 truth movement is just that American lives matter, ALM or something like that. Never was the case. It was always- We're going to get to one of those people a little later on, so brace yourself for that. It was always the case- that 9-11 truth was understood as the precursor for 9-11 justice, which was the precursor for peace, for the war crimes justified by 9-11. That was always the point. I was a peace activist well before I was a truth activist. But once I discovered some of these deeper aspects of the truth about September 11th, it became quickly obvious to me that just as it is described that peace is justice in action, which I believe to be true, justice is obviously truth in action. 
on all these scales. Most obviously, that's like the core. That's the core of any legitimate legal process is to put the truth into action, to find out the truth and then to apply the common code, the moral code to the truth. And so this is a, 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 a crucial thing that, that I be early on understood. So this was not about that this, this is the truth that is most important or the only truth that mattered. No, it was that, all right, we're a country of, we're, at a, we're in the United States of America where we're, we're engaged apparently in endless war, which includes all of the negatives of that, includes the death and destruction perpetrated against, quote unquote, the other in over, in quote unquote, over there. But it also obviously includes the death and destruction of, quote unquote, our own, our own countrymen and women who were sent over there to both potentially kill and be killed. But it also includes all of the economic costs, the moral costs, the, the liberty costs in terms of everything that we know, in terms of the post 9-11 assault on the Bill of Rights, the surveillance state, the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars invested in clear negatives rather than the opportunity to invest them in positives. And that includes, first and foremost, obviously human lives are way be they are a are a moral and spiritual good and of spiritual and moral dignity first and foremost. But you can also think through it that not only was it all these tax dollars that was spent, but it was a generation. It was generations at this point that were then invested in this millions, not just the soldiers, but the whole infrastructure surrounding this ongoing global war on terror and, and how aspects of our, of our best and brightest in terms of certain aspects of civil commitment and or capacity and or physical bravery and or technological abilities of how much of that infrastructure, uh, that belongs to each and every one of us, and then also collectively, was then uh, has been taken up, basically destroyed uh, in a in a, an act of what was bad faith by by the perpetrators of both those and of September 11th itself. So, in order to clean up this mess, we need to go from they lied to us. I guess we'll never know, though, but we know that they lied to us. To no, here are some people who did certain things. Let's figure out such questions of journalism, like we talked about before who, what, when, why, where, how, but also means motive opportunity in terms of alleging credibly, credible guilt, credibly accused suspects. And there is enough information if we're open to it and we do some amount of work of both gathering and parsing and discerning to make a serious case 
in the public that then would point towards both the political and criminal implications of who actually did this and why. And so finishing up, what, what I did early on was I proposed that we need to have a treason trial project directed by the 9-11 Truth Movement that included the fulfillment of the actual criminal code related to the laws of misprision of treason. And you don't only have potentially misprision of treason, but that's a specific aspect of this that because of what I, the aforementioned description, the specific description of treason as a crime in the Constitution, that this is what I believe we needed to focus on. And especially since this was, there was a war justified based on this, then the originating event was then could obviously be uh, legitimately seen as an act of war. If the response was an act of war, then the whole thing uh, is a war. And there were those, including people like John Gold uh, in the 9-11 Truth Movement, who would try to say that we can't talk about treason because this was uh, this is not an act of war. This was just a crime. It was a crime. It was murder, but it was also treason in certain elements. And I asserted that this was important that we treat this not just as murder, but as treason, because the ongoing wars justified by the the originating act of murder were 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 they were justified by an act of war itself, which is definitely definitionally treason. If any of those elements had rec, uh, had um, had alleged their oath to the United States of America and or then given aid and comfort to those who had attacked us. And it was clear that there was high level elements that were credibly accused of potentially both of those uh, aspects. And so I, I, I propose that after we had done our learning, our reading, our watching, our thinking, our writing, our discussion, and after we distributed our information, civil information to others, then it became a requisite to then, if you were considered yourself a, an American citizen of good faith, to then take the next step to fulfill the misprision of treason uh, codes, which included the, that you were to tell a, you were basically to inform a judge at either the federal or state level and then the the executive at both those levels too and so i propose that we should do this i that we each individual should go ahead and do this even if it were just seen as a, an act of of a civil act of some sort. Not that we were believing that every judge we informed or every governor we went to inform uh, th that they would actually act on it. But you could build a sense of, at the very least, integrity in terms of we were not just sort of like chattering and talking amongst ourselves, but we're attempting to follow the criminal code and fulfill our 
civil obligations to each other in our form of government. And so I went ahead and did this and, and created a, uh, a packet of information with a, a letter on it and uh, put it and brought it into the local uh, federal court district in downtown LA and submitted it to five different judges and then documented it as, as such. And then one other person, one, one other man on the East Coast did the same thing. And he um, had immediately resonated with the idea, was one of the few people who actually really responded in a significant fashion to me. And he actually sort of stirred me to like move towards it. All right, good idea. Let's do it. I'm going to do it now. And he went ahead and actually did it before me. And we had different approaches. He wanted to expose the treason of the, the bin Laden escape, which is an interesting way of going about it. I wanted to point out the treason of the high level cover up of what actually happened uh, on September 11th, including most obviously the demolition of the towers, which was the, so, the, key ground zero for the large portion of the murders on September 11th uh, and and how although there was not proof i would say of involvement in it specifically at the highest levels of the executive branch there was clear at the very least substantial proof that high level executive elements that i identified specifically with Dick Cheney and his purview that they were uh involved in the cover-up at the very least uh, of of these uh, cr criminal elements of September 11th. But the, the man on the uh, East Coast, he submitted to, to a judge in uh, Connecticut, and he got back immediate word from a source that he said that he had in the U.S. intelligence community. And he said that they have gone... They will not respond. The U.S. and he said the U.S. The intelligence community will not respond to the allegations that you made uh, in your. They've gone silent on talking about the allegations that you put forth in your uh, letter to the federal judges with the evidence. And in his case, about the about the uh, Bin Laden Torabora operation and what uh, stood behind all of that with multiple documentation journalistic documentation of that. And here's what he said. He said, the intelligence community, he said the source told him, the intelligence community does not fear the politicians, but they do fear the judiciary. And so I say all that to say that this is a crucial piece of our understanding, that we understand that we have a responsibility to make the case, to make the case of what we know about who did what and why, and and sort of just leaning into it doesn't matter in the case of these fake ass anti imperialists, or even saying I guess we'll never know for those who are engaged even in trying to know something and discuss it that that's not enough. That's not good enough, especially at this late date. 20 years after the fact, we know a lot. We know a lot. Do we know everything? No. And of course, we're never going to know everything about anything. That's even part of the scientific 
uh, evolving understanding of the physical world is that it's it's a series of endless hypotheses that hopefully help you understand through the understanding of number and uh, rhythm uh, the functioning of the natural universe. But you're never going to know everything about anything. And that most obviously applies to historical events. And even in criminal cases where someone is convicted of murder, there's always going to be something that we don't know everything about. The point is, do we know enough? What is the nature of the level of proof? This is one reason why like, I always appreciated the approach of someone like Seth Abramson to the 11-9 operation. It was all countenanced under the question of proof and, and basically saying, all right, the, if the FBI is not going to do it, if the, if the Justice Department's not going to do it, if the Senate Intelligence Committee's not going to get it done, if, the, if the, any, every, all the other politicians are not going to do it, if the media, the mainstream media is not going to do it, then, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you proof of this. I'm going to give you proof of collusion. I'm going to give you proof of conspiracy. I'm going to give you proof of corruption. And he was in large part able to do that based upon an open source intelligence kind of approach where he basically just brought together information that had been put together by all these disparate uh, media sources, but never put together in any kind of coherent fashion, i.e. what a prosecutor will do towards the end of a trial, maybe the, uh, the, uh, the final argument of a prosecutor. And so I believe we're at the place right now where now that the, the calendrical cult of the 20th anniversary has been said and done, we are now engaged in a very important matter, which is to make the case in a core political fashion and maybe the ending argument, potentially, in terms of that aspect and that core political sector about who did it and why, based on a careful application of the facts and the physical forensics as best we can ascertain them. And anything less than that, from whatever sphere, is not acceptable uh, at this point. Here we are on September 12th, 2021. All right, Greg, thank you very much for letting me say that piece. Uh, no, no, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. And I really, um, I really appreciate you bringing up the responsibility factor because, I mean, you know, you and I, we have no delusions of like our personal um, contributions. Like, you know, we're not going to start like a 9 11, like a uh, truth revolution tomorrow or anything like that. But I feel this way. I know you do too. We have a responsibility. And this is why we do this program. Um, we have a, I feel we both have a responsibility. We feel it's our duty and responsibility to speak the truth as we see it the best that we can. And that includes, of course, a big part of that, of course, is uh, bringing facts to power in terms of uh, just what we know and what we can prove and also things that you know you can't quite prove as far as like the, co the constant uh, process of, um, of developing 
uh, hypotheses and changing with information over time as far as like altering perspectives on things over time, which I feel like that is something you and I have both been exceptional at over the course of our program is uh, is not changing what we believe, but as far as like altering and uh, picking up on things as time goes on and adding that into like what we already see as far as like the world and uh, events going on in the world. And so I, I, I really do feel like we have this uh, duty and responsibility. At the very least, I feel like I have it to myself. And I feel like I, I'm not trying to speak for you here, but I feel, I believe that you have the same uh, felt responsibility and duty to just uh, go out and to tell the truth on the most important matters that you can think of as much as you, as we humanly possibly can, as we see it, the truth and the facts. And so that is what, what we try to try to do here. And um, that is, more i think more important than ever now and i feel like that obligation becomes more and more um important to us as as time goes on here so i appreciate you bringing that up and then also um you brought up the you brought up the traditional uh investigatory method as far as like the questions that are asked uh, who what when where why and how is sometimes thrown in there but the the five W's and somebody's maybe the one H in there, who, what, when, where, why, and how. And it's interesting. You brought up the, um, you brought up the people who will say that like, we don't know what happened. Um, in addition to those who say, uh, you know, we were lied to, or it doesn't matter, but also the, we don't know what happened. And yesterday I was invited to take part in a, uh, 9-11 20th anniversary panel discussion hosted by, uh, Billy Ray Valentine, of uh, host of the Infinite Fringe podcast, and I thank Billy for inviting me to be on there. And uh, I was on there along with uh, John Brisson and a few other people. And not to be critical of anybody on the panel or any of the sentiments that were particularly expressed, but uh, what I saw was um, a lot of that going on, um, and it goes on in other places too. I think this is something that's gone that goes on in a lot of places that you might be able to attest to more than I can, Jeremy. The uh, a combination of we don't know what happened, but then also like this um, generic, very vague um, notion that they attacked us. You know, they, they did this. They did this to take away our freedoms. They did this to start wars. You no, know, they, they, they. And you hear that all over the place, like throughout like conspiracy uh, circles and uh, the, the concept of they. Who is this? they that is causing these things they do these things to us and so you know bringing back into question those um the questions who what when where why how and you know we've, we've been talking among ourselves and you've uh in our conversations you know the importance of and i emphasized in this conversation with uh, this I participated in yesterday uh the on the who and the why in terms of um the you know, naming names and putting information together and making the case, as you talked about, in terms of uh, things that we've been talking about going back at least to our from 9-11 to 11-9 uh, special and ever since in terms of tying the events of uh, September 11th with uh, things that are going on now that are relevant in our uh, over the past few years in our domestic uh, domestic politics as well as geopolitics and uh, international politics of connecting those respective events, September 11th and a lot of the players, particularly around uh, New York City, as well as uh, some foreign entities, you know, particularly uh, through, the, say, the state of Israel, and then um, 
the events of uh, what we call 11-9, which was the day that uh, Donald Trump was officially uh, declared the victor of the 2016 election, and tying those, uh, those, common, those common threads together in terms of uh, the why, of the who and the what. But Jeremy, as you've also, um, or excuse me, I'm sorry, as far as the who and the why, but as you've also, point out, as you've also pointed out, the, the actual forensics of it, the, the what, and the how it was, and the what and the how it was done are also very important. And um, as far as I think you've really, um, for me, uh, the, the balance of understanding, you know, not just making the case for in, uh, particularly in New York City, as we focused on, um, a both a long-term and a short-term uh, hypothesis theory of who and why but also it is still very important. It remains very important. The, the what and the how of, of what was done. And because, you know, if you just simply, if we don't understand the what and the how, we just have a bunch of names like, okay, well, Larry Silverstein called Netanyahu once a week and uh, they would discuss things. They were good friends or you have a uh, property being transferred over. Okay. What about that? But then when you connect that with the, you know, the, the who and the why with the means, motive and opportunity from both a, um, short-term benefit payoff, but also long-term uh, propaganda, long-term um, goals and objectives and motives that are still being carried out today and that go far before September 11th, actually. Uh, that is where I think you make the case, and if we can balance the, you know, the forensics, the science of, uh, of World Trade Center towers, of how, how buildings fall versus... Um, and balance that with the the people involved the who and the why who are these people why are they motivated to at the very least um capitalize off of something like this and at the very worst be at the core of carrying this out this treasonous offense you know as you talked about treason being uh, uh as far as the classified uh, crime in the in the constitution and so I, this is really resonating with me on this uh, 20th anniversary as this continues to become more important as time goes on as far as uh, the importance of exposing this and becomes more important as time goes on. I believe it will continue to get more important, uh, both from a domestic perspective as Americans, but also on a global perspective. And balancing out, being able to have an understanding of the, the, the what and the how with the who and the why, I feel like is uh, very important. I thank you for really um, making this clear to me, Jeremy, in terms of the why the, a balance of these important factors is of so much importance. And I guess for me, the why and the the who and the why, I think, really becomes uh, for me it was imperative because of the you, know, you hear you see so much of like the. Uh, talk of like what has what specifically happened in new york what specifically happened in washington what may have, may or may not have happened in pennsylvania and for me like i i feel i feel that there's way more maybe maybe i'm not entirely right on this but i i sense that there's way more discussion of that than of like a clear conversation of okay here's who's involved in this in new york city and here's why they're involved and let's let's take connections let's take commonalities let's take uh things that are ha that are shared and held in common by these particular people and interests but um it, it's all very important and i mean i think the balancing out of the who and why with you what and how i think is um 
I think is instructive for everybody who still um, is this matter is still very important to in terms of trying to get to the bottom of what exactly happened and making the case publicly as much as we humanly can. Well, thank you, Greg. And there's a lot of pieces of all of that. And I very much resonate with what you're talking about in terms of how central the who and the why is. And I agree with that. And I think that it makes sense too, even if we were just to be talking talking from using the limited perspective of criminal process towards this, which I think is appropriate because I, I have a hard time imagining how we, I mean, there's ways I can see pathways to a, a much better future uh, where we figure out our more general national and, and international crises while still avoiding the criminal question of September 11th, there's, I can imagine certain ways we could get there. They seem very rare. So at some level, I get the sense of like, we're going to have to figure out a way to proceed through some aspect of truth and accountability and very likely some aspect of a criminal procedure in order to bring the 9-11 era actually to a close, which would then open up the floodgates for all of these other resources to be deployed towards a creative and lawful and maybe more American Renaissance in, in our context-based future. And so in an illegal process, it's obvious that the, the what and the how matter. You don't have a case if you don't have a what and the how. This is always the idea of the, the smoking gun and then where it happened near the body or into the body and then the, the smoking gun, right? And of course, it's almost, there's, never a, there's almost never an actual a smoking gun. There's a murder weapon. Often there might be fingerprints. There might be a, a witness of some aspect of the crime or the lead up to the, to the crime. And so obviously you have to have a baseline level of things like what, when, and how, but ultimately you have to get to, to why that's next, right? You got to have a, then a motive, but ultimately it's about who, and that's a crucial piece of our legal system is that that we're not all culpable for an individual crime. The people who did the crime and then the people who actively maybe helped that person or those people or actively then covered up for them after the crime, those people are responsible and need to be held culpable. And those are the two aspects of the, of the legal system that are crucial. One is that it helps actually build history because it should be yoked to the truth. The justices obviously must be yoked to the truth. But then this is also then where you get to the question of peace, especially when you get to a major crime, an internet, a crime of international proportions like September 11th that had multiple murder scenes, for example. Right? You have the Pentagon. You have Ground Zero. You have, you have uh, Flight 93, you have Shanksville, 
But then you have then the international criminal aspect of Afghanistan. That was a derivative crime of September 11th. You then have the entirety of the war on terror ongoing drone strikes. Then you have the clean break wars, Iraq, all justified in under the idea of September 11th. Next time there'll be a mushroom cloud. What, what if we allow Saddam to get the, the nuclear weapon next time there'll be a mushroom cloud? Well, yeah, what about the mushroom cloud that we saw on t- television in lower Manhattan on September 11th? What about that mushroom cloud? Let's, let's uh, interrogate that mushroom cloud and see what it might say about the who and the why. So I just, I do agree with you, Greg, that like the focus on the who and the why is, is the crucial thing. And the why is the crucial thing actually in a political context. And maybe that's potentially the difference between the legal justice and political justice. Legal justice must focus on the who, because someone needs to be held account. There's someone who's in handcuffs. There's someone who's presenting themselves to a jury. There's someone who's going to be potentially uh, locked up if found guilty. But in a political context, the why maybe becomes more important. The who is still very important, but the why becomes maybe even more important because the, the end goal is to construct the public good, right? That's the legitimate end of legitimate government that's under we the people and that is given its legitimacy by we the people is the why of the, the why should be the public good, not imperial expansion, not the extension of a unilateral moment, not a, a locutist uh, uh, plan for greater Israel, not a plan for the destabilization of the West and the discrediting of the West by luring it into its own uh, Afghanistan, its own next generation Vietnam as the elements of the West, the U.S. and Israel most specifically, quote unquote, gave the Soviet Union their Vietnam and Afghanistan. None of these are legitimate whys for massive action such as war. I understand that that's sort of the way things go or have gone, but that's not what, what our government's supposed to be about. And so we have the responsibility to uh, assert uh, something else there. But I think the main thing is that we begin to create a structures and categories and conceptual, uh, conceptual strategies for beginning to not only understand uh, some of these things, but also to be able to, uh, to talk publicly uh, about them. and. So these are the, these are the sort of maybe two wings of the ongoing cover-up, not always overt, not always conscious, but almost a subconsciousness of cover-up. Sometimes it's more overt, but the two wings of it are, well, I guess we'll never know. We were lied to, but I guess they, they did it. I get we're lied to, but I guess we'll never know. Two, it doesn't matter. The other, the other wing is it doesn't matter. 
as much, or it maybe it doesn't matter who did it. It matters what was done afterwards. Or it doesn't matter as much as these international things that were done to quote unquote other people. I just want to remind everybody that even just in lower Manhattan on, on American soil, so-called homeland, that there were people from over a quarter, there were, there were, there was nationals from over a quarter, maybe up to a third of the countries in the whole world were murdered on September 11th. It was an international crime. It was an international war crime even. September 11th. The cover-up of September 11th being perpetrated by some of the highest levels of the municipal government then in the in New York. For example, people like Rudy Giuliani to Bernard Carrick on up to the highest levels of the federal government. People like Michael Chertoff, the head of the criminal division at the Justice Department on September 11th, on up to the highest levels of the executive branch, most obviously Dick Cheney and his office and his milieu. Not only treason we're talking about, but we're also talking about the, the perpetration of international war crimes that most especially at ground zero, right? Some might say the Pentagon, if this was actually some kind of military attack, the Pentagon is a military target, even though there's civilians who work in the Pentagon. The, the, the Pentagon is a military target. The World Trade Center was not a military target, no matter who did it and why. So it's most obviously an international war crime, especially if done by state apparatus. And the, the who and the why leads to state apparatus. Not just one, but most especially one. And, if, and as we pointed out, as you mentioned before, Greg, that when you start drilling down on, all right, maybe these are circumstantial facts. Who owns the buildings that just got blown up on television with the human beings in them vaporized, some of them? No, no, no parts of their body found or maybe little tiny shards of bone fragments found on building rooftops more than a football field laterally in an alleged gravity collapse based on the weakening of steel based on uh, jet fuel? But this again points then to other issues here in terms of like the mind control. Even things like the, the memification. I say, well, maybe we'll go back to this another time. But there's been a big run-up this year actually. And I saw that this, uh, this actor, Dax Shepard, is that his name? I can't remember. But uh, he has a big podcast now. And uh, there he brought on a, he has this sort of like professional debunker, quote unquote, journalist guy who brings him and his co-hosts the conspiracies that they're going to then debunk. And they dealt with 9-11 pretty early in the year. They also dealt with uh, JFK. I haven't listened to that one, but I listened to the I listened to the 9/11 one, and a lot of it was based on the evolution of Dylan Avery and loose change. 
and jet fuel doesn't melt steel. And a lot of this points to, and by the way, a, a very f- interesting focus at the end on the absurd hypothesis of micronuclear devices in relationship to ground zero. They didn't mention ground zero, just the nomenclature, ground zero. Well, you never use ground zero for like a murder. You don't use ground zero even for a uh, building demolition. Ground zero is definitionally a place of a nuclear explosion if you're talking about an obviously explosive event. So what about that? But I just want to point out that they, 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 the memes, the memification of our understanding Jet fuel doesn't melt steel, right? That's sort of like the big phrase, supposedly, that is the basis for everything we know or don't know in the quote-unquote 9-11 truth movement. But meanwhile, what do the forensics actually show? What are the physical, if we were going to be precise about the physical forensics, we might say something, jet fuel doesn't vaporize human bodies. Or we might say something like jet fuel doesn't vaporize molybdenum, which by the way, molybdenum microspheres, much is made of iron microspheres that were found. And there's something crucial to that. Because in order to get a microsphere, you're talking not just about melting, you're talking about something like very likely the vaporization right, where it's sort of where the metal has become sort of almost between liquid and gas and then re-solidifies into, and then by surface tension in the air is then created into a sphere. But meanwhile, molybdenum, which has, I believe, more than two times as high a melting point as, uh, as steel does, or in that realm, something around between you know, something low 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. There are molybdenum spheres found. Okay, so once you just just parse out the forensics of this, take it out of the realm of memification, and then you can actually have a serious conversation here about uh, what happened. Because as we talked about before, Greg, you can only get so far trying to reverse engineer from the who and the your suspicions about the circumstantial evidence of the who and the why. Larry Silverstein talks to Benjamin Netanyahu every, every week uh, up through the quote-unquote privatization by such, uh, uh, led by such people as uh, Ronald Lauder uh, with a partnership from people like uh, Eisenberg at the Port Authority, New York, New Jersey Port Authority. And by the way, remember who Eisenberg's deputy, staff deputy at the time was. He ended up uh, helping uh, deputy campaign manager the 11-9 operation in Donald Trump. But a, uh, a, dull, uh, a dull KU guy, Michael Glasner. Right, so these there's people with names that are in certain places at certain times. Doesn't mean that they did the thing, but it does mean that they did something. What did they do? They transferred. Someone transferred the real estate. 
These people helped transfer the real estate. Larry Silverstein's good friend was part of the deal. Frank Lowy, the Australian-Israeli, hyper-Israeli partisan, who, who, who helps fund a, I think, a quote-unquote counterterrorism center in Australia. So these people have names. There's dates in relationship to the transfer of this property. But you only get so far by saying then, okay, this property was transferred uh, at this time. This same guy had weekly calls with Netanyahu, who had been the prime minister, was uh, uh, going to be the prime minister uh, once again after he uh, was the main uh, Israeli instigator for the Iraq war and the American Congress, as we pointed out in 2002. But that only gets you so far if all you're saying is, oh, these, this, these guys who did the transfer of the real estate and Larry Silverstein who, had, who got the major ownership, all of that happened was his building got crashed into by a hijacked plane by Islamic terrorists. Go look at what Tulsi Gabbard, the once, the once icon of the quote-unquote progressives. Fuck you, Jimmy Dore, you chump. You should, Jimmy, someone like Jimmy Dore should be totally discredited just for his support of someone like Tulsi Gabbard based on what, I mean, we, we assessed it immediately at the time. Not to mention, not to mention people like the author of The Management of Savagery, Max Blumenthal, who, uh, who thinks to basically may as well support Tulsi as well, you know, basically in, um, in alliance with uh, Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson on how great Tulsi Gabbard is and David Duke. So, I mean, it's, 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 there's a lot of people who share responsibility for like propping up Tulsi as this uh, anti-war hero. True. And Tulsi comes through on the 20th anniversary of September 11th, the great anti, uh, anti-regime change war TM and uh, comes through with nine. The lesson we learned from 9-11 is that the Islamist ideology did this globally. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, go, go watch the videos of us confronting Tulsi Gabbard. Be like, no, Tulsi. How about the Israelis who were celebrating the Israeli intelligence who were caught with explosives in the van. It was on mainstream media that the quote that Middle Easterners were caught. Never identified as Israelis. But then who then got them sent home? Some of them immediately, apparently, on an LL in an L all flight when Michael Moore and his his agent Ari Emanuel producing films like Fahrenheit 9-11 focusing on the Bush-Bin Laden connection and bin, the Bin Ladens being flown home when all other flights are grounded. What about the Wayne Madsen reporting about the El All Israeli flight that was uh, signed off on by high-level elements in the U.S. government? Now, I've, I've read that that was Michael Chertoff. I've also read that it could have been someone in the Pentagon. But the fact that we don't know about that flight, that we don't talk about that flight, and Tulsi Gabbard is allowed to be some kind of 
alleged anti-war candidate with people like Jimmy Dore blowing and, and all the other people that you mentioned blowing smoke up the ass of the alleged left and the alleged peace movement and the alleged anti-establishment. She's basically a neoconservative under the guise of being anti-corporate, anti-woke, and obviously anti-Islamic terrorists. And Al-Qaeda did 9-11. Should I read the... Should I read the tweet? Yes, please. Okay, here's the tweet from uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Do, do, do some tweets. Twitter forensics for us. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> All right, here we go. Tulsi Gabbard, one day ago, let us hashtag never forget that it was the Islamist ideology which inspired the terrorist attacks and declaration of war against America on 9-11. And it is this is Islamist ideology that continues to fuel terrorist attacks around the world and is the foundation for so-called, quote, Islamic, end quote, countries like Pakistan, Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia's discriminatory policies against Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, etc. So she blames the Islamist ideology on September 11th and then names like just a, a mishmash of different countries. <laughs> Interesting, both Iran and Saudi Arabia are named in there with a Tulsi, you know, the supposedly she's, a, she's an Iran dove, supposedly, mixing it in with Saudi Arabia. And just uh, it just seems to me like just a mishmashing of like whatever of a number of different countries to talk about their oppressive and discriminatory policies, taking away, getting outside of whether there's legitimacy or not to that just the mishmashing into this bigger islamist ideology that uh resulted in terrorist attacks against us it sounds very much like what you'd hear from like the uh you know the steve bannons the jack Posobics, that type of propagandist of the world thank you for filling that in and and maybe since uh we've already gone a good bit here in this preamble for why on september 12th Quote, unquote, 912. Remember Glenn Beck, the 912 project? Uh, that the, the totality of the forensics, which would include especially the who and the why of September 11th, is more important than ever and matters more than ever. It definitely does not not matter, as I heard as I saw people on the mass peace action aligned with code pink zoom call about what we can learn from nine 11 and the nine 11 wars uh, uh, asserted after uh, the global exchange partner. And uh, I believe apparently Greg, it looks like it, the actual uh, married partner of Medea Benjamin, Kevin Danaher Danaher started going into 9-11 truth and brought in some aspects of forensics in terms of building seven. Now I'm going to put aside, there is an aspect of the mind control where such things as just asking question, we're asking question 9-11. That was a big one. Uh, the, uh, the guys from who did lose change, that was like their main phrase that they got behind question 9-11 or the, the John Gold uh, version of we were lied to on 9-11, which a lot of people who should know better took up. That there's an aspect of the mind control that goes back to the phrasing or what's focused on and what's not focused on. 
So I remember when there was this major push to focus on building seven, because this is what Kevin Danaher mainly focused on when he began to bring in some aspect of 9-11 truth into this, what I would assert is a left controlled opposition, certain aspects of gatekeeping, not saying that all the individuals or any of the specific individuals are quote unquote gatekeepers or agents or anything like that. I'm just saying this is a network gatekeeping affair everywhere from Code Pink to Peace Action to the quote unquote left liberal anti-war movement that I saw that when they started, there was a shift in the 9-11 truth movement. I've already spoken about like the, what happened with We Are Change, where when We Are Change and, and the uh, direct association with InfoWars began to draw attention away from what was declared as the core mission of We Are Change itself, actually, which was 9-11. 9-11 accountability, 9-11 truth, the 9-11 first responders, the 9-11 family members. That's in the mission statement, I believe, of the founding of We Are Change. And then meanwhile, some of the groups that got formed after that, and definitely InfoWars associated, they start shifting the discourse from 9-11 to the Logan the questions of treason to the Logan, the violations of, so this is why I say, it. we see a shift from 9-11 treason to violations of the Logan Act. And we see a shift. You no, know, it's very interesting. I was just going to say, it's very interesting that the uh, Logan Act is brought up in terms of treason when you've talked about, you know, treason in the Constitution as it relates to September 11th. And rather than like, and of course, the, even the way like the, uh, you, you could talk about this, you could test this, probably not now time to do it, but you know, you could attest to like some of maybe the less credible ways of like September 11th activism by elements of some of these organizations uh, and it's not that it's not that black and it's not that black and white it's more nuanced than that but um that combined with going from trying to prove the crime of September 11th to oh let's go and chase around people at Bilderberg and just look like complete uh, nutcases in the process trying to prove that these people are are violating the Logan Act which is treason by appearing at a No 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 Greg that's the the point they were not saying that violating the Logan Act was treason they were moving the discourse from treason to the Logan Act and so what you're saying is exactly true though in terms of that that was actually the second part of it that the, I saw the shift in was from ground zero Larry Silverstein demolitions, first responders, weird cancers to Bilderberg chasing around people screaming at them about Bilderberg. So Alex I, I Jones, uh, Alex, yeah, Alex Jones screaming about babies being brought in coffins to in limousines to the Bilderberg attendees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I noticed around the same time as that was happening, the shift from nine 11 treason to Bilderberg Logan violations, uh, <laughs> Logan Act violations, that a similar kind of thing happened. And architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth were actually a key part of this, which I see as a detrimental move, at the very least, I think, strategically, but also, I think, spiritually and morally. There was a move to focus on Building 7, almost away from the, the trade towers and the World Trade Center. And the observation I made at the time was the 
the crime, there's not necessarily a crime of demolishing a, a very likely empty office building. There might be. I mean, there's maybe there's some fraud stuff. Maybe there's some criminal destruction, property destruction. But what about the murders that took place in the World Trade Center? And there's almost, a, this is again, a flight away from the really difficult stuff, the really uncomfortable stuff, like grappling with really hard forensics, such as bone fragments on rooftops, a football field laterally. Just start thinking about that and talking about that. Because like I was saying before, you you got to have a certain, you got to pass a certain threshold in terms of the, the what and the how in order to even be able to make a case about the who and the why. And that once you get there, though, once you get into a place where, for example, you're crossing the threshold from, all right, and I'm not, the point is not that there couldn't be a potential pancake progressive collapse based on the weakening of steel trusses uh, and uh, concrete floors based on uh, uncontrolled airplane fires in a hypothetical context and that quote unquote jet fuel can't melt steel, but we're dealing with the actual physical forensics of what actually happened. Not a, a, a scientific thought experiment about what could happen, which is virtually the entirety of the quote unquote debunking movement around 9-11 in terms of ground zero and the physical forensics of the trade towers and what the actual murder weapon was that was used to kill probably the vast majority of the people in the towers was that it brought you immediately into a kind of scientific thought experiment about the potential weakening of trusses and the weakening of steel and pancake collapses. But meanwhile, the actuality, the uncomfortable physicality, the uncomfortable forensics was that people were vaporized. Human beings were basically vaporized. Body parts not found. Some people, there was never anything found, I believe, from their bodies. Other people, there was small shards of bone. Think, think about what that is. How do, you, how do you think about how bones are pretty hard, pretty dense? How do, you, how do you basically shardify human bones in a progressive collapse of pancaking floors, first and foremost? How, do, how does that happen? And then, and then add on top of that, in terms of physical forensics, how do you then toss that sharded, small shard of human bone fragment onto a rooftop 300 feet laterally or something like that? So these are the, the types of physical forensics that are the basic ways to begin to think through and then publicly talk about this so that you then can then say, okay, Larry Silverstein not, didn't, his crime was not talking to Benjamin Netanyahu or trying to purchase the building. It's the fact that this building that he then purchased via his other 
mega Zionist buddies was then blown up on television a few weeks later. All right, now we're talking. It wasn't that it just got crashed into randomly uh, from the outside by uh, Tulsi Gabbard's favorite Islamist that you love to hate as an alleged peace candidate. No. Now you're talking about ground zero. Now you're talking about, all right, who's in control of ground zero? Not only who owns it, who's running the security for it? Who has access to it? Now you're talking about, was there strange happenings in the weeks in the run-up? Were there strange power downs? Was there some kind of cyber element? Was there a security stand-down? Who are the elements that the Trade Center uh, security was given over to after the original bombing at the World Trade Center? So now you're starting to talk about Kroll. You're starting to talk about John O'Neill, who, by the way, remember, and we've talked about this before, John O'Neill, the, uh, at that point, veteran FBI agent for just a week or two. And by the way, it looks like he was targeted. He was, his briefcase was uh, apparently taken uh, while he was at a conference. And then it was apparently returned at some point, but then he was then this was part of the way that he was uh, put into a bad light was that it was said that he was sloppy with his, uh, that he was sloppy with secrets. But it looks like someone wanted to know what John O'Neill knew. And we pointed out before that in the back of Robert Maxwell, Israel super spy, that the, that a major, if not the main source in terms of the geopolitics in terms of major assertions, factual assertions that have major geopolitical uh, consequences around the who and the why of something like even the run-up to 11-9, is John O'Neill is a major source for Robert Maxwell, Israel super spy, for such assertions and allegations that Robert Maxwell, Israel super spy, also a Soviet super spy of some sort, was the one who taught the Brainy Don, the gangster of gangsters from the Russian deep state sphere, Semyon Mogilevich, the man who is alleged to have control, attained, acquired, controlled the compromise information that was used to turn such a currently relevant uh, public leader as Viktor Orban from Hungary towards the, back towards the Russian sphere. The Soviet sphere. That Robert Maxwell, as apparently alleged as the source of this, in Robert Maxwell, Israel super spy, but uh, John O'Neill is the source, that Robert Maxwell was the one who taught Semyon Mogilevich the financial instruments, the, the, the financial, the money technology to be able to launder and move billions and billions and billions of dollars from the formerly Soviet deep state apparatus in around the globe and especially into the West. And that is where we see the, the foundation ultimately for the 11-9 operation and Trump, the real estate guy, 
surrounded by the real estate guys and Trump Soho facilitated by Russian oligarchs. That's John O'Neill, I mean, the source of all of that. Um, what you're pointing out here is very important, and it's coming from the, uh, from the basis of, um, of moving just simply beyond I mean, what, you've, what you've come up, what you've, what you've identified here is so important, I think, from just simply going beyond just Larry Silverstein and Benjamin Netanyahu talking on the phone and Larry Silverstein owning a building, but then going into the question of, well, this is what happened mere weeks after he wins the right to this building thanks to all of these other players at the New York, New Jersey Port Authority and what happened to... It's very interesting you bring up O'Neill because, uh, you know, it's, uh, we go back to the current events and how September 11th and the events of September 11th um, continue to resonate so much in our current politics, you know, domestically and geopolitically. Uh, and O'Neill dying in the World Trade Center being the source for Robert Max for uh, Gordon Thomas, I believe Robert Maxwell, Israel's super spy in terms of this vital information about uh, about Maxwell and Semyon Mogilevich. And then you, that leads you to other questions. I mean, if John O'Neill were alive in the lead up to the uh, 2016 election, maybe, or even before that. What does John O'Neill say in the future that could help continue to, does he go public with any information he knows that could help contribute to, um, to our understanding of what took place on uh, what we call the 11-9 operation, both before, during, and after? Does he go to other important people who are putting out important information regarding the, and sharing his information there um and then that leads you to uh, so there's a lot of consequences there and even that leads to o'neill and the whole maxwell mogilevich um aspect of things of course you've got um the kroll the about of kroll being in charge of uh, security you've got of course giuliani and carrick on the ground there in new york and we've talked so much about their their connections in terms of being in positions of uh of administration in the city of New York City. Um, and then that even brings in further questions. Just going, I'm going a little more full circle here based on what you said there about O'Neill and this whole question of the, uh, of the organized crime aspects of things, which is so important to our, I believe, the current picture in terms of the Trump presidency and the forces that brought that along and all the consequences that come with it. Then you bring in the questions of that might resonate with people who are really, um, on the ball about like 11-9, uh, you know, the Manafort Brothers Company, Manafort Family Company comes in to help clean up the uh, World Trade Center steel. Henry Kissinger's on the 9-11 Commission. The questions of Maurice Hank Greenberg and uh, future Iraqi provincial uh, governor, governor, head of state, uh, Paul Bremer, uh, being in charge of a company owned by... Uh, Hank Greenberg's son, uh, Marsh McLennan, where hundreds of his employees are probably burning to death inside the towers while he's on television blaming Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda for September 11th and saying basically the same war on terror talking points that uh, Ehud Barak was saying in a BBC studio in London. So um, you just hear just hearing this. I mean, there's you start to put these pieces together of people and interests like it leads you in a lot of different directions and it helps you. Um, it brings this for me brings September 11th together with the with the current situation that we're still um, in right now as a result with so many of the same players uh, from a domestic and geopolitical scale involved with uh, what we call 11-9, 
with the September 11th and just the consequences, thinking about like the consequences of uh, John O'Neill, um, you know, being in that position to where he is put in charge of security and then dies that morning. So I, I just, I was just tying that together there. And it's more of the, it's more of the filling in of the dots of naming names and understanding motives. So potentially. Well, I, I very much appreciate that. And, and that is a thread. I think that we should continue onwards as we move forward in terms of the direct connections, once again, between these key aspects of Ground Zero on 9-11, as you pointed out, Marshall McLennan, and, uh, and then these other elements of the Trade Towers, AIG, which ultimately came to acquire, which Marshall McLennan was actually a subsidiary, I believe, of AIG, Maurice Hank Greenberg, the co-chair with Henry Kissinger, who had been first fronted, floated as the head of the 9-11 Commission. But meanwhile, they were also the co-chairs of the uh, Center for the National Interest. Is that right, Greg? The cent- I always confuse it with uh, Allison, the Allison Weir's the, uh, organization. The, yes, it's the Center for the National Interest, the former Nixon Center, which was uh, at least officially headed by uh, Dmitry Simis, who was a Russian... Uh, Soviet immigrated to the United States who last we heard had actually moved back to Russia a few years ago and was appearing on Russian television as a pro-Trump analyst. But I mean, it's just um, that aside, as far as like the significance of Kissinger and Greenberg and Center for the National Interest, which we've covered um, on our programs, as far as just like no one knowing about that aspect of like the critical aspect of like all things related to Trump and Russia and collusion and 11-9 no one knows about that, much less how this ties into the 9-11 in very many ways, potentially. So, And by the way, as the same way that Dmitry Simes goes missing from the United States, it looks like, apparently, in the wake of 11-9, right, Greg? He's sort of after that. He's that's when he goes he goes to Russia, right? Sometime Around the time, it looks like, when the Trump-Russia investigation begins to get moving. I believe the uh, articles were attributed, uh, came out in the late 2018, early 2019 time period. I'll have to go back and look at that again, but I believe it was in that time period. So by that time, he had uh, left the country. So meanwhile, it's interesting about all the stories now talking about how uh, one Charles Bozeman of Russia Insider goes missing to uh, immediately leaves the States uh, to go to Russia in the wake of the one six operation, the storming of Capitol Hill and the whole high level setup of that, that includes certain Flynn elements in the Pentagon and all of that. Makes me wonder, Jeremy, you know, we hear all the time in like alt media circles. So quote unquote circles about, uh, dual citizens of like the u.s and israel it almost makes you wonder like should we open up like a investigation into dual american russian citizens and matt, i don't know you know I mean, who will, officially and unofficially you know who will uh, immediately uh, push back on that is a uh, max blumenthal who sat on a stage next to charles bozeman who accused allison weir of anti-semitic conspiracy theories for talking about uh, Israeli uh, academic-born research about the uh, Parushim, the secret Zionist society that such uh, U.S. Supreme Court justices as Louis Brandeis and Felix Frankfurter were a part of in helping bring the uh, conception of Israel 
uh, in into play. And Max Blumenthal called Alison Weir's very well documented book against our better judgment and her uh, revelations about the parushim and their influence at the highest levels of the American judiciary, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And so I'll bet you that he would call the accusations of dual Russian uh, loyalty uh, in relationship to his uh, fellow panel member, the Jew taboo question publisher, Charles Bozeman, uh, some kind of... uh, uh, ethnic uh, racism of some sort, Greg. So don't you dare yeah, and inv- get yourself involved in that cr- criminal thought. And I believe this all coincides. I'll have to go back and look at the chain of events again, but this panel, I believe the panel was about the info war, information warfare, interestingly enough, and uh, Blumenthal sits there with uh, with Bowsman. This was all around the time of the, uh, the infamous, now sort of infamous, uh, RT 10th anniversary dinner that Blumenthal was in attendance with, along with uh, Michael Flynn and uh, Jill Stein. It raises another interesting specter of a question surrounding that. And uh, just what you point out with Blumenthal and the anti-Semitism, here he is, along with some other people, targeting um, this... I think pretty mild-mannered, soft-spoken uh, older woman, you know, Bernie Sanders supporting uh, as an anti-Semite for bringing up, like, crucial historical information regarding the um, the complicity of aspects of, uh, in terms of the launching of the First World War and the American involvement in it and the all the consequences to come out of that with the establishment of Palestine leading to, of course, the, the state of Israel later on. Yet, Charles Bowsman, who writes an article for russia insider about how the jew taboo in terms of people who won't discuss the jewish question needs to come to an end and we need to be talking about this there's um there's no there's no organized coordinated campaign by blumenthal and fellow travelers to label charles bowsman this 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 horrible anti-semite who needs to be uh basically needs to be publicly shamed out of uh, activism circles so i mean it's just and by the Set way, point. Jill Stein, on a previous uh, fairly recent uh, mass peace action uh, live stream, was mimicking all of the lines of the Russia Gate conspiracy theory. Russia Gate was a nothing burger, and so it's come to a point of like where did she she uh, you know understand you could make a you could make a sort of a lapse of judgment to go sit your butt down uh, at some kind of gig with uh, Russian state media, Putin, the false flag uh, uh, initiated, uh, you know, state, apparently state crimes against uh, Russian democracy terrorists who became the uh, leader of the country, but also Michael Flynn, the war criminal general, pseudo patriot, co-author with Michael Ledeen, and apparently Jill Stein has not concerned about that. She's doubling down. 11-9 didn't happen. It did nothing. No one did anything in any context uh, around that. So and, um, this is an issue. And one more point on and one more point on 11-9 tying right back to 9-11, which we're talking about. Let's remember two of the primary or at least one of the primary public uh, Personas pushing the narrative which led to January 6th, you know, the stolen election, the Dominion servers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've already mentioned him, the mayor of New York City on September 11th, Rudy Giuliani, and his uh, 
and his partner in crime, both literally and figuratively, uh, Bernard Carrick, right at the forefront of pushing those, uh, pushing that narrative. So it ties right back to, and there's an extended propaganda network that even goes beyond that. But they're right there with one six and uh, uh, September 11th. You've got a direct tie-in right back in terms of, at the very least, pushing uh, the pushing of narrative talking points in terms of uh, January 6th, and maybe more than that, with direct. Um, with direct uh, evidence of a complicity in terms of the events in New York City on September 11th. So there's a direct tie-in right there, but we know we can't talk about the 6th because it's just part of a, you know, the deep state wants you to shut up about the 6th or whatever. A very interesting clip going around from what Rudy Giuliani was doing to uh, quote-unquote celebrate Dick Cheney's uh, highest moment from the George W. Bush administration 9-11 Yesterday, Giuliani was went on some kind of rambling thing about Prince Andrew and uh, says he never really hung out with him. Definitely not in the presence of uh, women or underage girls. Uh, And then he says, "Uh, we remember that time when we hung out with him uh, in the office. Uh, You remember that, Bernie? Right. He's talking about obviously to Bernard Carrick with and talking about Prince Andrew and Epstein and all that. And so, yeah, you're definitely right. Like Giuliani and Carrick himself are some of the crucial, obvious tie-ins between 9-11 uh, and 11-9. And to crucial, remember, we've talked about this before, but we'll talk about it again, that when Giuliani was asked by the press corps to follow up on this question of the mainstream media reported arrests, Involving the what we now know were the Israeli intelligence white vans, and and uh, here here again is a bait and switch or a um, a mind control focus on the meme the quote unquote dancing Israeli sort of with you get a little bit of like a, a Jew taboo dog whistle on that too where there are they are they dancing to Hava Nagila with the pace and the and the hats and stuff like that so they they're dancing or were they were they caught celebrating but of course the focus on that is to direct away from the question that was directed at Rudy Giuliani about uh, some of the some of these white vans and the apparently Israeli intelligence linked individuals who were there was other ones some of them were caught and then there was apparently uh, ex- explosives involved in all of that and Giuliani immediately passes the question to Bernard Carrick who basically uh, poo poos it. Um, so this is a very serious thing that we need to begin to look at, look at, which would include the larger parameters of uh, what and how, but also who and why. Because once you deal with the fact that the quote unquote dancing Israelis who were their main crime was that they were celebrating because they were they understood just as Netanyahu admitted that this would be good for Israel. That that's not a crime being a douchebag who says that uh, terrorism against the United States is going to be good for Israel because obviously it would be. And then, but when you add that up though, (laughs) no, but my point is, is that it's not that it's what it's actually covering up is not these guys celebrating, taking videos across state lines in New Jersey from Liberty park. It's actually multiple Israeli intelligence white vans with explosives in them, some of them with apparent intent to go blow up the George Washington Bridge, uh, the Lincoln and Holland Tunnels, but also the uh, high-speed data uh, 
uh, connection that was laced under the George Washington Bridge to that connected not only the major NSA listening posts, apparently, in the, in the Northeast, which was right over the bridge into New Jersey uh, off of off of the George Washington Bridge, but also the SWIFT banking system so that so that if this were all successful, not dancing and taking pictures, but trying to blow up major thoroughfares into the most the sort of most major city in the world that was already under terrorist attack with the some of the tallest buildings in the world with thousands of human beings in it vaporized and disintegrated on live television. But then they would also then be uh, piled on with uh, separating them out from the world. And create major chaos by eliminating the uh, ability to leave Manhattan. Remember, there's this massive pollution, this aerosolized destruction uh, that is in the air. Thousands of people are suffering. Lots and lots of really uh, uh, high-level cancers that point towards something like uh, nuclear involvement in it. Um, people get stuck in lower Manhattan via the tunnels, but also then separated out from terms of the swift banking system, taking that down, uh, putting, you know, putting a, uh, putting a stick in the eye of the NSA listening base right across the bridge there. So I guess my point is that, that the focus on the quote unquote dancing Israelis celebrating Netanyahu and all that is a way of keeping it across the bay or over there. And so to keep people focused on Netanyahu saying this thing over there rather than his weekly phone calls to Larry Silverstein in lower Manhattan at ground zero or not these Israeli spies who were uh, caught on the other side of the Hudson celebrating and taking video and with pictures with flicking bics and, you know, as if it were they were celebrating at a rock concert. No, but the other Israeli intelligence operatives in the other Israeli white vans, intelligence white vans that were caught trying to blow up the George Washington Bridge and the Lincoln and Holland tunnels. So I just raise that as one piece of mind control memeology that is run through large aspects of 9-11 truth, the conspiracy movement. The, criticism, the, the critiques of Jewish power in a way to try to uh, look over there, red herring over there, and contain the conversation away from the much more important and much more criminal uh, pieces of evidence that Rudy Giuliani and Bernard Carrick were obviously part and parcel of covering up at the very least uh, in the wake of September 11th. You could not be any more correct. And one other consequence of that is um, that taking the focus off of uh, potential uh, criminal evidence that this attack could have and may have turned out to have been way, way worse than it was. I mean, in terms of as catastrophic as it already was, I mean, just it could have been so much worse of a catastrophe that already was instead of taking information or uh that could lead you to uh, investigation that an understanding of what uh what may have been planned as far as making the attack worse than it already was instead it becomes about this um goes into the old canards of like without this understanding like an actual criminal uh element taking place with this um you know the dancing israelis and all this um instead you it goes into the old canards of uh 
you know, anti-Jewish or whatever, and so you were able to have Donald Trump on one hand uh, say that there were Muslims celebrating within, what, miles of him? or And then you've got Glenn Greenwald pushing that, well, the idea that there's anti Israelis, that's anti-Semitic, that's anti-Jewish, and we must never discuss that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, like, it all becomes, goes into, like, the old canards and the old dialectic as far as uh, uh, Jews and uh, conspiracies and all this, rather than actually looking at actual criminal evidence that um, shows that very likely this thing could have been far worse than it was if there hadn't been uh, actions taken. So it's, I mean, it's, it's got a, it's a lot, of, that's another one of the consequences. Yes, and, uh, and maybe we should do uh finish up this uh, segment of our conversation, Greg, and then do another um, conversation more specifically about these uh, conversations that you referenced earlier that point to the specifics of the problematic nature of some of the discourse around that includes people who were, you know, said to be 9-11 truthers, maybe even invented the term 9-11 truther, or at least at early, the earliest advertisers of the truther brand, but also people who stick up for that. Obviously their physical common sense tells them that uh, the trade towers were blown up rather than uh, collapsed. And the people like that, but then so a little bit more about what uh, I learned on the mass peace action code pink call in terms of some of the uh, aspects of that. I just wanted to, to bring a, a, a brief close to that is that in response to Kevin Danaher talking about uh, 9-11 truth being crucial to what we learned about the about 9-11 and the 9-11 wars in Afghanistan uh, was they said, well, I remember that Fidel Castro said it doesn't really matter who did 9-11. It matters about what was done just based on justification of 9-11. And I immediately say Fidel Castro is totally wrong then and he's wrong now. And uh, so but maybe we'll, we'll discuss some of these kinds of uh, conversations that we have observed and what needs to be uh, dissected, uh, criticized, deconstructed uh, in relationship to a more accurate, honest uh, and just approach to the topic of what we've learned about 9-11 in a future conversation. But, Greg, I just wanted to bring to a close a little bit of the question of John O'Neill. Because I think you were you were right in terms of how much that then resonates uh, with these other key individuals on maybe the perpetrator side rather than the potential witness or whistleblower side, such as what looks like John O'Neill was, but these potential credibly accused uh, suspects related to some aspect at least of the 9-11 cover-up, such as Rudy Giuliani and Bernard Carrick. And uh, that I just want to just bring that to a close. I would point out that one, it was very interesting that one of one of my main maybe mm, truth uh, action, truth squad nemeses in terms of asking questions about September 11th is Bill Bratton, who is the former uh, police commissioner of New York, eventually became the police commissioner of New York again. Uh, but in between, he worked for Kroll. I believe he was, I believe he worked for Kroll. 
on September 11th, I believe. And then he was then uh, he went to L.A. He was uh, went to Los Angeles. I believe he helped oversee some of the Kroll was the quote unquote independent uh, monitor of a federal consent decree over the Los Angeles Police Department after they shot rubber bullets at uh, protesters at the Democratic National Convention in downtown L.A. in 2000. And then maybe apparently on the back of that, Bratton parlays his way into the chief of police of Los Angeles. There's questions about fusion centers. There's questions about the harmonization into the federal homeland security system under Bratton. Then Bratton leaves early. He uh, aborts his the full term. And there's a whole, I've, I was confronted him on the day of his, the announcement of his retirement on the, uh, actually, I think it was on the local NPR affiliate in LA. And, and that was a weird day. I, I had the LAPD helicopter hovering over me out in the San Fernando Valley. I had no clue why. This is in the morning of the day of Bratton's announcement. I didn't have no clue that he was announcing anything. And I was like, what the heck? You know, I mean, the, obviously there was, had, I had been subject to some certain obvious surveillance by uh, helicopters. Some of them obvious, they're, they're certain colors related to the, uh, the uh, LAPD helicopters, which were uh, the blue, the uh, blue and the silver, really, silver helicopters, the LAPD. And that day was one of those. It was an LAPD helicopter hovering over my head for a good little bit, obviously getting some kind of visual on me. And then I hear on the radio or just a little bit later that day that uh, Chief Bill Bratton is unexpectedly renouncing his retirement at, at uh, City Hall. And, uh, and so then later in the day, I call into the NPR affiliate and uh, ask him about Kroll. Because then, you know where Bratton was going? He was going to then work with uh, Michael Cherkasky, who was the managing director of Kroll, actually. Uh, I believe, on September 11th. So fact check that. And I asked about this connection of Kroll and the quote-unquote security breakdowns at the World Trade Center in relationship to the obvious demolitions. Uh, and uh, Bratton showed intellectual bad faith is the best way that I could say it. It was the most, uh, great, it was the most uh, generous way I could say it. And that I'd already confronted him multiple times before in person on camera about this very specific issue one time in front of his own command staff that was not on video but that was uh he th th that was very interesting the command staff appeared they didn't they didn't try to push me away they let me say exactly what I was going to say to him and uh Bratton uh pretended like um like he was going to shoo me away as a conspiracy theorist. But then when I confronted Bratton on the radio, the day of his uh, announced retirement about this Kroll connection, about he was going to work for this uh, Altegrity is what it was called, Altegrity. Uh, I started in my mind, it's the alternative to integrity, but he was definitely going back to work with uh, Michael Cherkasky, who, who had uh, been at the 
and managing director Helm of Kroll. And Bratton pretended like he'd never heard any of this before, let alone from me, specifically multiple times before. So it was an, there is an act that Bratton has. And I'll then I'll just finish this little part up by telling people they can go look at a very interesting We Are Change LA video where a bunch of us went and confronted him about 9-11 and Kroll and Jerome Hauer and, uh, and Katie from We Are Change LA after the event was over. And I ultimately got not allowed to go to the after event because I had interjected uh, something when I believed he had been lying. That Katie from We Are Change LA asked him specifically, you know Jerome Hauer? Jerome Hauer, I believe another managing director of Kroll. Jerome Hauer, key figure actually in a lot of this. Jerome Hauer, part of uh, the uh, Dark Winter, the uh, the biowarfare drill in the summer lead up to September 11th. I believe it was a smallpox drill in the run up to the actual anthrax false flag attacks on the U.S. Senate, amongst uh, others. And Jerome Hauer uh, played the role of the Secretary of Health and Human Services, I think, in the dark winter, in the same way that Judith Miller played the role of the journalist. <laughs> and uh, James Woolsey played the role of the CIA director, as he was at one point. But Bratton admitted, he said, yeah, I know Jerry. And then she asked him whether he knew John O'Neill, because that was a question that she brought up in the forum. And Bratton did this, his similar kind of what looks to me like a dishonest spin around it. And I believe people can go look at this video. I believe it's still up on We Are Change LA a YouTube channel, but you can go watch Bratton talk about how they were, I believe they were hanging out the night before September 11th, I believe. I believe that's what he says. But definitely close before September 11th, they were at, oh, I forget the name of that. It's this infinite, infamous place, uh, a sort of club slash eating uh, dining club in, uh, in Manhattan. And uh, it sounds like they were all together. John O'Neill and Jerome Howard. He called him Jerry. Bratton, Bill Bratton calls it Jerome Howard Jerry. So they're very close. Well, obviously you'd think they were sort of like Bratton's in this Kroll crew. Bratton's in the in New York circuit. It appears that Jerome Howard was the one who helped Rudy Giuliani set up the uh, mayor's emergency operations center in Building 7. And... And this is part, you know, we should fact check this and I want people to fact check me on this, but it appears that this is part of the, what happened to John O'Neill. He stayed out late the night before September 11th and he had drinks and then he shows up at his newly acquired job as the uh, head of uh, security of the World Trade Center under the guise uh, or under the contracted employment of Kroll, of Jules Kroll specifically, 
in relationship to Larry Silverstein's complex. And so he's had very little uh, time to sleep, maybe a little bit of leftover effects of alcohol. And he shows up uh, in the morning, first thing in the morning for a security job. And then boom, September 11th attacks uh, and all of that. So who was, who was John O'Neill with the night before September 11th? Was it Jerome Hauer and Bill Bratton? And I'm just asking the question. It's a well-known intelligence tactic. If, you're, if, if, if there were to be an operation, a targeted operation, one of the targets of the operation might be cultivated the night before to do things such as make them tired or make them drunk or encourage them to stay out late. Now, I'm not asserting that this is a fact. I'm just saying these are the parameters I'm aware of. These are some of the, the way that some of the forensics of the morning of September 11th fit together in relationship to some of the individuals who have names and who had public positions that this is the way that it stacks up. So I want to just read one piece of this Robert Maxwell Israel super spy, the life and murder of a media mogul by Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon to finish up this question about John O'Neill. Um, uh, unless you want to say something first, Greg, specifically on this. Uh, just that this is all very interesting. I've never heard this before. This is, um, I mean, you know, as you say, this is all speculation. You know, we're not, not asserting anything, but just, information that needs to at the very least be put out in the public record so um. all right so and this goes back to what you were saying greg about how people the people who maybe have never really dealt deeply with september 11th but have dealt deeply with trump russia what we would call 11 9 we didn't call it 11 9 actually we didn't call it 9 11 my, people like Michael Moore did, <laughs> right? And so we drafted off of that. Michael Moore, via apparently with his buddies in Hollywood and uh, his agent, Ari Emanuel, the uh, son of a Ergun uh, gangster, maybe a terrorist, as his agent for the films that Michael Moore made titled Fahrenheit 9-11 where a lot is put on George W. Bush and the Saudis and uh, bin Laden's flown out of the country and not a whiff of people like Michael Chertoff and El All Flights and Israeli intelligence arrested, apparently, with explosives. And then Fahrenheit 11.9 in the wake of the Trump-Russia, quote-unquote, operation. And, and Michael Moore covers up all of that, too. And definitely does not mention Benjamin Netanyahu in uh, Fahrenheit 11.9, let alone in Fahrenheit 
which is obviously a connecting thread through all of those things. And so we drafted off of that in terms of talking about from 9-11 to 11-9. All right, page 367 of Robert Maxwell, Israel Super Spy, The Life and Murder of a Media Mogul by Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon. To really drive home how crucial this figure, John O'Neill, who's a, there's, who killed John O'Neill? Interest, that was an interesting documentary that was made fairly early on in the 9-11 truth movement. Who killed John O'Neill? And Katie actually put that forth in front of Bratton to the entirety of the audience uh, there. She said it's an interesting film. You should go watch it. And it is interesting. And the question is still open to some extent because it, it did someone try to kill John O'Neill? It looks like he had been targeted when he was at the FBI. And uh, as I read this, I want to point out that there is aspects of where, and we talked about this before, that from this book uh, to the uh, Gordon Thomas's solo book, uh, Seeds of Fire, the analysis of September 11th of who and why is an obvious, obviously limited hangout. And so listen to some of the description in terms of John O'Neill, because and I'll just point this out now that it's very, very, I've, the, the chatter is right. That John O'Neill was investigating some of this network and it was not just a network that tied into over there in Afghanistan, but he has also been investigating who actually did the uh, USS Cole bombing uh, or, or torpedoing or missile, or it's actually not clear. That's actually a question of forensics of like, was it a, how, how did that all happen, right? Was it a, a, a boat? A crucial event, a crucial event to um, continue to put the, makes terrorism synonymous with Osama bin Laden. So it's crucial in that regard. And in, in other ways as well, but definitely in terms of like the legacy in the, of September 11th and the mythology of it, that was a crucial event in, uh, in making terrorism synonymous with uh, bin Laden. So Exactly. And so this is why th this, this kind of the, now we'll listen to this, but, but with, with in mind, the understanding that although this under, may, helps us understand a lot in terms of the background of things like 11-9, Trump Russia, uh, Trump Israel, the Epstein-Maxwell operation, it also obscures the reality of September 11th and the purpose of all of that. And so the possibility is who killed John O'Neill might be more tied. The question bet is begged of, is it the is it closer to ground zero? Let's say is maybe what, the way that we could put it. The, is the answer to the question of who killed John O'Neill more tied to ground zero than Afghanistan? And does it have to do with the growing awareness and suspicion and potential knowledge of someone like John O'Neill about the nature of the networks that appeared to have done 9-11 to 11-9. Okay, page 367. Quote, John, uh, okay, as well as the usual research tools, official records, memoranda, and wide variety of published material, we would need to get to the unpublished data. Without that, we would not be able to move far beyond the published record. That we were able to do 
so we owe above all others to one man. John P. O'Neill changed this book with his contribution to our knowledge of the globalization of organized crime and Maxwell's seminal role in it. The FBI's foremost counterintelligence expert, John O'Neill, was an executive agent in the New York Federal Bureau. He understood how major East European crime figures had learned from Maxwell the way to launder money and manipulate the world of international finance. Equally, J.P., as he was sometimes called by his friends, detected the dangers lurking in Afghanistan long before Al-Qaeda surfaced as the major terrorist organization in the world. He had studied the post-Soviet Afghan war and warned that former Mujahideen had linked up to form a new terrorist organization. Quote, these guys are a serious threat. They are confident because they believe they defeated one of the greatest armies on earth, the Soviets. The problem for us is that many of them are from different countries, and the linkage between them is well hidden, unquote, O'Neill stated. That was years before the 11 September attacks in 2001 on America, and no one listened. Quote, people have forgotten the first attack on the World Trade Center. It is as if that was a one-off. When you think like that, you are vulnerable, unquote, he told close friends. By the way, remember that the, another crucial book about this aspect of uh, international organized crime, Red Mafia, by uh, Robert Friedman, where the final chapters are about Mogilevich in many ways. They're also about Sharansky, Natan Sharansky, and his relationship with organized crime that is, was tied into the uh, company Nordex that I believe the Maxwell Sons worked at. But Friedman also wrote a key article about the First World Trade Center uh, attack, which remember, this is when Kroll was then brought in after that that it had to do, there was a Mossad-Israeli intelligence uh, link to all of that. There was a safe house, an Israeli intelligence safe house related to the uh, World Trade Center 1 bombing. Okay, Robert Friedman. And so uh, see if you can go find that. So, and... The chatter was is that John O'Neill had begun to uh, become aware of Israeli intelligence relations to the uh, USS Cole bombing, and then his investigation had been shut down by elements of the State Department, it looks like. At that time, I believe it was Barbara Bodine or Bodine. Um, so that's an a interesting piece of all this. So it's interesting that they're referring to O'Neill talking about Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan saying that it was years earlier. And so there's a question about whether the there had been some evolution of John O'Neill's uh, understanding in the years subsequent. Okay, back to the text. 
page 367 of Robert Maxwell, Israel Super Spy, The Life and Murder of a Media Mogul by Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon. Quote, in 2001, John O'Neill decided that his time pursuing a lonely course in the Bureau, which he had done for years while trying to get people to listen, was over. Quote, I'm thinking of going into the private sector. That's where the real money is, unquote, he remarked in June 2001. It was time to talk to a close friend and look for alternative employment. The man he turned to was Jules Kroll of Kroll, Inc., the top private investigative agency in the world. Quote, John was the best, unquote, said Kroll. There was a big job going, and Kroll knew J.P. O'Neill was the man for it. It would eventually give John $300,000 per annum, the kind of money he needed to finance his complex and lavish lifestyle. It would also give him prestige. Quote, I got John the job as head of security at the World Trade Center, unquote, Jules Kroll told us. That was at the end of August 2001. On the evening of 10 September 2001, John O'Neill went out on town, went out on the town to celebrate his new status and the wealth it would bring him. First, there were drinks in Windows on the World atop the World Trade Center, where he was now the security boss. An aside, isn't that where uh, Larry Silverstein had his regular breakfast? Most every morning at the World Trade Center? I believe it was, yes. And then he missed it because of his uh, dermatologist appointment, right? Yes. People go look at our show on unlucky Larry Silverstein, which is not usually talked about. How about Larry Silverstein was almost mowed down by an apparent hit and run. And during, during the uh, apparent bickering amongst different individuals and factions for control of the World Trade Center, it looked like. We called that one unlucky Larry Silverstein as opposed to lucky Larry Silverstein who didn't show up, who had his lucky dermatology appointment uh, on this infamous morning. Back to the text. Oh, yeah, this is what I was thinking of. Quote, then it was on to Elaine's Bar Restaurant on the Upper East Side for dinner, where he talked about terrorism and the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center. By the way, is this where, is this where, uh, who were the friends that he was at Elaine's bar restaurant with on the Upper East Side for dinner the night before September 11th? Was, uh, Bill Bratton there? Was Jerome, Jerome or Jerry Hauer, as Bratton likes to call him? Jerry? Was Jerry Hauer there? That, those sound like his, potentially his friends that he might have been out with. Who else was there? All right, back to the, the uh, text. Quote, then it was on to Elaine's Bar Restaurant on Upper East Side for dinner where he talked about terrorism and the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center. Later, he took friends to Stage 3 at the China Club. One friend, which one? One friend later recalled his saying, quote, at least on my watch, I can say there was a never an attack on New York City, unquote. The next morning, 11 September, he was in his new office on the 34th floor of the World Trade Center by 845. 
After the first plane struck, he phoned several friends. He was last seen outside the trade center looking up before running back in. His body was found five days later under the rubble of the Twin Towers. His contribution to this book was enormous and began several years ago when he first talked about organized crime, citing the Maxwell factor as a significant turning point in the way East European criminals operated. He had not seen a direct link between organized crime and terrorism, but believed that sooner or later one would occur. Quote, if there's big money in it, organized crime will supply the product. They have well-established routes through which to channel fissile materials. Just because they are not doing it now does not mean they won't. Many of the people running crime syndicates have come out of East European intelligence services like the KGB and Bulgaria. Those guys know how to hide their traces. They've been trained to do it, for Christ's sake. When Vladimir Kroichkov was KGB chief, he put his people into the private sector before the collapse of the Soviet monolith, and they are still there in every European country and here in the United States. You only have to look at what Maxwell was about. He designed the financial model and the Soviet lot brought their expertise to it, unquote, said O'Neill. He saw the intelligence on the flow of money from Eastern Europe and had no doubt that some of those involved had used not only aliases to enter the U.S., but also Israeli passports to do deals with indigenous crime organizations such as the Gambino and Gotti families and the Russian mafia based in Florida and Brighton Beach in New York. And aside, are you hearing like massive resonance with the characters of the 11-9 operation in Trump? Brighton Beach, of course, you're talking about El Caribe and Michael Cohen's family's club uh, all mobbed up. You're talking about Florida, right? Trump, Trump, Russia, all over that. Epstein's in the mix here, right? This is Maxwell. This is one of the uh, potential godfathers of the uh, Epstein operation, obviously. All right, back to the text. Quote, the fact. Oh, real quick yeah. with the real quick. I'll say this with the combination of organized crime and Zionist. Uh, Leanings and loyalties, though. Definitely. Okay. Quote. The fact that some of these people were Soviet Jews is no comment on Israel. Criminality and race are separate. But the problem began with men like Maxwell and Lukanov and was passed on to men like Mogilevich and Ivo Yanchev, to name but a few. Many of these guys have been able to hide behind big bank accounts or politicians and state officials they bought in countries where they have their operations. Organized crime may not have direct links with terrorism in the minds of some analysts, but just give it time. These people have no scruples. They're just as likely to fly a consignment of missiles to Iran as a plane load of coke out of Colombia into Florida. They are sophisticated and wealthy. Money can buy the silence of important people. It talks, believe me. Their laundering of money is hard to trace, and terrorists have learned from organized crime, from the Maxwells of this world, unquote. John O'Neill remarked in one of his conversations, punctuated by brief absences from the table, while he took another call from a friend who was a source or a source who was a friend. The revelations about John Goodwin Tower 
came from three sources, CIA, FBI, and MI6, coalescing in the words of John O'Neill. Quote, when Tower became involved with Maxwell, he came to the attention of all those agencies. You've got a senior political figure who's a national security risk. We're not talking about a nobody. Tower was across a lot of sensitive stuff. Next thing, reports are hitting people in London and Washington that he's in the company of the wrong people. Intelligence agencies were interested and had files on both Tower and Maxwell. There was one hell of a problem. Tower had a lot of powerful friends. But there he was, using his reputation to open doors to Sandia for Maxwell. You can't take down a guy like Tower without clearance from the top. We're talking White House. He was opening doors for Maxwell that should have remained closed. I don't want to go too deeply into this, but it didn't go unnoticed, and I'm not going to speculate about why or who. <laughs> it was clear Tower was bought by Maxwell, but that would not have been enough to go after him. As I see it, Tower had to know who he was dealing with, especially Maxwell's business associates in the Eastern Bloc. You may want to look at why we never followed up on Maxwell after the Sandia episode. That should have set off alarm bells. And again, when Tower joined one of Maxwell's companies and spent time in Bulgaria. You might also want to look at Maxwell's Israeli contacts and ask if he had a godfather in Mossad. Tower was a national security risk. With his background, he was mixing in bad company. It goes deep. That's all I'm going to say about it. Be careful where you tread on this one. For some people, it may be a very sensitive issue, unquote, said John O'Neill, making it clear from the look on his face that he would say no more on the issue. Unquote. From Robert Maxwell, Israel Super Spy, The Life and Murder of a Media Mogul by Gordon Thomas and, uh, and Martin Dillon. Sounds to me like... Uh O'Neill may have had the answers to some questions of of, it, of things that have been posed uh, as far as the, um, of course, John Tower promise uh, of the, what was it, the transferring of uh, promise software from to Bin Laden? I believe it was attributed to Mogilevich. So, a lot of a lot of stuff there. And definitely, the at the heart of it is the access to the American nuclear establishment. And promise is crucial to that, and Maxwell as the driver of that, and Israeli intelligence as the engineer of the back door, and then Senator John Tower as the asset to deliver it. And once again, Mogilevich and bin Laden, interesting questions, but more central to ground zero, I would say, is Maxwell Tower. Promise, Israeli intelligence, Sandia, nuclear pits, and ground zero, and the murder of thousands of human beings then justified the murder of potentially millions after that fact. So, and I agree with you, Greg, it sounds very directly like O'Neill, O'Neill in his own words, as quoted in this book, is talking about the Israeli connection, how sensitive this is in terms of the full spectrum of all of this. There are certain people that might not want, you know, who 
will guard this. You got to be sensitive about this. And so there's a lot of questions left open by this and John O'Neill too, in terms of his own judgment or what that all means, how, how he got wrapped up with the, uh, Jules Krolls and apparently the Jerome Howers and the Bill Brattons and found himself at ground zero the morning after he was out on the town parting it up with his buddies. And it's clear that he knew about the Maxwell network, knew the, how it sat at the intersection of certain key aspects of organized crime. Israeli intelligence deeply in the mix, Soviet intelligence deeply in the mix, those in the U.S. and the U.K. who who knew, and as he says, what the uh, the Sandia incident should have rung tons of bells. Sort of sounds like George Tenet talking about the system blinking red. My hair was on fire. Remember what we then read from from uh, Gordon Thomas's Seeded Seeds of Fire and what uh, Tenet was uh, focused on, which included this whole array of things, organized crime, the Russian mob, Mogilevich, missing nuclear materials, dirty bomb making, Israeli intelligence role in Europe in terms of all of this, the breaches in uh, U.S. nuclear laboratories, China and Israeli, China, Chinese and Israeli intelligence working together on, uh, on, uh, ex, ex, uh, filtrating the, basically the family jewels, apparently of us nuclear intelligence, including the drives of uh, the X division of the department of energy's nuclear bomb squad, the NEST who then conveniently were out of the country for the first time in three years, doing Operation Jackal Cave uh, and undoing a nuclear device, terrorist nuclear device drill, but on the wrong continent, away from the ground zero, similar to FBI counterterrorism individuals off the eastern seaboard. The head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff out, out of the country, I believe. All right, so these are a lot of the dynamics here. And there are, that's, you know, back to where we started. You could say, I guess we'll never know. Sure. I guess we'll never know exactly what was John O'Neill's mind. What was in John O'Neill's mind in relationship to exactly what he knew or why he was, you know, hooked up with these guys. It's very possible we won't know all of that. But meanwhile, look how much we can know and how much it begins to make an understanding of what actually happened or what's continuing to happen everywhere from 9-11, before and beyond. How coherent we begin to begin to actually piece together the facts and the forensics way beyond, I guess we'll never know, into no. Look at these networks. Look at individuals who have names and motive and opportunity, and means in all of this. And meanwhile, why are they still just out there not being questioned about all of this? People don't even know about them a lot, a lot of people. So, no, 
we're not going to let it rest as I guess, I guess we'll never know, or it doesn't matter in comparison to the crimes done on top of the crime. Neither of those are correct. And the, I would say that one is not correct and that we'll never know. We do know, we do know some things. We don't know everything, but we know enough to make a public case. A, a, a public case that has core political traction, I would say, let alone the potential anticipation, anticipation of proper uh, legal investigation, journalistic investigation on top of it. But then the other side of it is it's, it's morally wrong that it doesn't matter. And this is what I'm hearing these so, so-called peace people, these foundation, you know, sort of foundation-sanctioned the dissident class left in relationship to the lessons of 9-11 20 years later is it doesn't matter who did 9-11. It still does. And we're not going to end the endless wars of the 9-11 wars until we get to the bottom of who did 9-11 and why. And that doesn't mean that we, there's not political and or legal and or social action to be taken before we know everything, as we're not going to ever know anything. But we must speak and we must act with what we can know if we're willing to do some basic amount of homework and thinking and consideration and uh, coherent uh, moral strategic um, mapping of our situation. Um, so we will discuss more of this and uh, get into some more of the uh, problematic terrain of the public intellectuals who were supposed to be on the right side of this question uh, surrounding um, this 20th anniversary of September 11, 2001 that just recently passed. Yes, and I think this is a good time to get ready to wrap up the this portion of our um, of our September 11th uh, coverage here. And uh, just following up what you said, you know, it's not going to suffice. Uh, it doesn't matter who's responsible. Um, we don't, or um, or we were lied to, or just generic expressions of they did this to us. They are doing this. You know, the 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 mysterious they. Who is they? These are questions that can be filled in these are things that can be filled in i guess i'll finish this by uh saying talk about what we talked about what we've what we've discussed among ourselves before and the term that we've introduced once with another term uh and that is rehistoricize and destigmatize that um is something that we want to try and do as much as possible with regards to september 11th but also like the way um these types of these types of topics are covered in terms of um the way they're put out there and um, rehistoricizing how these topics are put out and while shedding light on them, while also at the same time destigmatizing so that people who may not be so inclined or who may not be uh, who have an aversion for whatever reason to um, to looking at some of these deep, uh, these deep events as far as uh, deep political events. Um, the way they will perhaps in the future maybe making it more palatable for people um, to do in the future. I mean, this is, you know, this is a task, but I mean, this is a, for us to rehistoricize and destigmatize these as we can um, in terms of uh, the two of us and our platform. So 
uh, that is um, my what I would close up by saying as far as uh, rehistoricize and destigmatize. Yes, and that and that is only I believe the responsibility that we can take on. We're not going to be able to make this easy for people. We're not going to make this be able to make this convenient or socially uh, strategic for people to be able to take on no matter where they're coming from. But what we can do is attempt to recontextualize it and uh, destigmatize and relegitimize or rehistoricize some of these questions about these key events. And then the different sort of spheres of people who maybe were unwilling to deal with this aspect for whatever reason, they can then decide whether to uh, take up what I would assert is their moral and patriotic duties or not. And some will choose not to. Some have chosen not to. But uh, to all of good faith, we're all in this together. And none of us have the key or know the whole truth or are the ones that the whole thing is dependent on. No, we're all in this together. And by being in this all together, we're also all in this with our own individual responsibility to decide how we're going to deal with this or not. And uh, so I think we here at The Antidote urge us to deal with this. I couldn't agree more. All right. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, everybody out there for listening, hanging out with us. All right. Until next time, Antidote, we out. So long. Thank you.